Hello, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. Thank you for joining me in the study of God's Word. In this lesson, we continue our look at prayer. No wicked prayer would be complete without studying Jesus' example prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me warn you, however, this is an intense lesson. Not because I'm an intense preacher, but because Jesus took the greatest themes of prayer and condensed them down into a few lines. May I encourage you to sit down with your Bible to study this lesson out. If you're like me, you will be amazed at all that Jesus actually taught us on prayer in just a few simple statements. May God bless us as we learn Jesus' example prayer. I'm opening in my Bible to Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. I imagine that you would agree with me that no series on prayer could be complete without taking a look at the great example prayer that Jesus offered in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. As He taught His disciples how to pray, He said, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. One of the great mistakes often made with this text in our modern religious world, is to reduce this passage down to simply a formula for proper prayer. This is not just some kind of magical chant that we're supposed to repeat on various occasions or whenever we do something wrong. What Jesus has done in this text, it goes so well with what He's done throughout this Sermon on the Mount. As He's taken so much teaching on prayer, and so much that we ought to do in prayer. And it's almost as though he took it and he dropped it in the pot and turned on the burner and he just boiled it and boiled and boiled it and got all the excess off until he finally got it down to just the absolute concentrated matter of prayer. And that all we have to do is just add a little water and it just gives gallons and gallons and gallons of teaching on prayer. This has probably been, for me, the hardest lesson to put together. And I'll tell you why. As I went into it, I thought to myself, this ought to be the absolute easiest lesson. The outline is right there. I'm just going to go through and just talk about what is said, our Father in heaven, and then you know, point on hallowed be your name, and so I'm banging away, and I'm cross-referencing, and I'm looking at all these passages, and, and I've typed in, and I've already filled in almost two pages of notes, and now it's time for me to start talking about hallowed be your name. And I thought, oh man, that just isn't going to work. And so I said, well, we'll have to scrap all that. I've got to boil it down a little bit more. I'm just absolutely amazed how much Jesus is able to get in just three verses. It's truly amazing. And interestingly, today, so many people spend so much of their time discussing this prayer, asking the question, can Christians today pray this prayer? 
After I've gotten done studying it, I have a bigger question. The question is not, can Christians pray this prayer? But once we actually study and find out all that's contained in this seemingly simple prayer, are there any Christians today who really would want to pray this prayer? And so we're going to examine it and the teaching that Jesus has given. And no, we are not going to cover everything. But I hope we can learn some more about prayer tonight as we look at what Jesus has taught when He said, In this manner pray you. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, Your name is indeed to be glorified here on this earth. Father, we do pray that Your kingdom will rule in this world, that Your rule will spread throughout this world, and that Your will will be done not only here with us, but throughout this nation and throughout the entire world. Father, we pray that You would continue to provide for us the blessings of life. You have done so much. Each of us have eaten every day. So few of us here have gone hungry at any time. And we pray that You would continue to provide for us what You feel is right and necessary for us. Father, we've sinned and fallen short of Your glory. And we owe You a debt that we cannot pay. We pray, Father, that You would forgive us. And we pray that You would strengthen us to forgive others, that You may forgive us. Father, we pray that You would go with us and You would guide us as we walk through this world, that You would help us to overcome the tempter to quench His fiery darts with our shield of faith, that we would take the way of escape by following Your lead, and that we would be delivered from the snares and the traps of the evil one, that we would not experience judgment, but for Your mercy's sake, for Your name's sake, we would experience Your mercy. Father, You are worthy of praise, for Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Yours is the victory. Yours is the honor and the blessing. And through your Son, we come to you in prayer. Amen. Jesus began this prayer by saying, Our Father. When he said, Our Father, he was not just giving us the title of the one to whom we are addressing our prayers. He was describing the relationship that we must have with God in order to pray. The word translated father here is pater, and it denotes an ancestor. But the scriptural connotation of the word used here is that of progenitor, or the source of life. The father is the one who provides life, who sustains, and who maintains, who strengthens, and who encourages. The father also is the one who is the boss. He is the one who is the head. He is the one who is the leader. He's the one who's in charge. His word goes. And when Jesus describes God as our Father, He is not here talking about a physical relationship of Father and Son. 
He's talking about a spiritual relationship. And he demonstrates to us that prayer is the privilege of the saint, the child of God. Unless one, having been baptized, has clothed himself in Christ, he cannot claim to be a child of God. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, Paul said, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If we desire to pray to God, we must put on Christ. We must be baptized into Christ and therefore be sons of God through faith. And then we must continue on recognizing God as our source of spiritual life. Relying on God and leaning on God and trusting God to be the sustainer, the encourager, the maintainer, the strengthener of our spiritual life. The Hollywood picture that anybody who reaches the end of their rope can fall to their knees and pray and God will listen and answer and deliver them is just not true. One of my favorite movies in all the world is It's a Wonderful Life. But I just have a pang every time I see old George Bailey in that bar. And he says, God, I'm not a praying man. Well, then you might as well not start now. Unless you're going to become a child of God. And be a praying man. Or a praying woman. A saint. Plugged in. Because God has not ever said that He will listen to just anyone and everyone he has said, if you can call me your Father, that is the person who can pray. But I want you to notice the other word. Our Father. Very interestingly, whenever we go through the Gospels and we see Jesus actually praying Himself, He always refers to God either just as Father. John 17, 1. He says, Father, the hours now come, glorify your Son that I may glorify you. Remember we read that last night. Or he says, as in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. However, here in Matthew chapter 6, as he turned to the disciples and he taught us how to pray, he didn't say my Father, and he didn't just say Father, he said our Father. Now, please do not misunderstand. I am not suggesting to you that we are not allowed to say the words, My Father. Passages like Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 where Paul pointed out that we were not given again the spirit of bondage unto fear, but the spirit of adoption by which we can cry, Abba, Father. That demonstrates that certainly in our prayers we are allowed to say the word, My, in connection with Father. But I believe Jesus was demonstrating a point here as He taught this prayer and He introduced it by saying, Our Father. Because the fact is, if we have a relationship with the Father, we have to recognize that we automatically have a relationship with His other children. One of the big movements in our world today is this idea of how to be a Christian without being religious. And what, they, what is typically meant by that is how to be a Christian but not have to be a part of a church. 
We need to understand that if we want to have a relationship with the Father by which we can come to Him in prayer, we've got to have a relationship with the hour. I certainly understand and recognize that there have been a lot of egregious errors committed by organized churches. But let us not throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we do not want to have a relationship with God's other children, then we cannot have a relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love God, love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? Someone say, oh, I don't hate him. I just don't really want to have anything to do with him. If we can't love the children of God, then we don't love God. And there's no way that we can come to the Father in prayer saying, Our Father, if we are not willing to be a part of the Our. Further, as you read through this prayer, what you will notice is that as we're praying for daily bread, as we're praying for debts to be forgiven, notice that it constantly uses that first person, us. Everything in this prayer that we're asking for is not to be just about individually, me. It's to be about us. And unless I want these things for you as much as I want them for me, I couldn't pray this prayer. Our Father, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven. We are on earth. God is in heaven. What an acknowledgement in this prayer. God is not one of us. God is not like us. God is different from us. He is distinct. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God wants us to understand, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And, excuse me, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. We are not just talking to someone who is just like us. He thinks differently than we do. He values different things than we do. What we recognize from this is that when it comes to prayer, if I want to talk to this God properly, I can't just do what comes naturally. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If I want to pray properly to the God who is in heaven, who is not on earth, I'm going to have to be transformed. you realize what I learned from this? Is that if I am praying now about the same way I would have prayed before becoming a Christian, I'm probably not doing it right. But as he points out that God is in heaven, that calls to mind some passages. 
for instance, Psalm 115, beginning in verse 3. In Psalm 115 and verse 3, it says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. And it goes on to talk about all the idols that can't do whatever they please. Our God, because He is in heaven, is not bound by the laws of earth. He is not limited in the same ways that you and I are limited. And God can do whatever He pleases. When we are acknowledging that God is in heaven, we are acknowledging that He can do far more than we can think or imagine. But we are also acknowledging that because He can do whatever He pleases, He does not have to do whatever I please. And therefore, my prayers do not manipulate Him. My prayers do not force Him. And I recognize that there is no way for me to trick Him or to hide the truth that's in my heart from Him. When I'm talking to you, I can be manipulative. I can trick. And I can control. And I can hide. But when I'm talking to God, I can't do that. Because He is in His holy temple. He is in heaven. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll just be honest with you, brethren. Some of the advice that I hear, some of the advice that I have given on prayer in the past before doing this study almost frightens me when I consider this passage. How many times have we heard, how many times have we said, somebody says, how do you pray? And we say, just talk to him like you're talking to your best friend. Brethren, I don't know how you talk to your best friend, but I certainly don't want to talk to God that way. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1 says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, he says. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity. But fear God. He is telling us the Lord is in His holy temple. Keep silence before Him. Think about what you're going to say. Don't come to Him hastily. Don't come to Him rashly. Don't just say everything that comes to your mind. Think about it. Be sincere. Be thorough. Be thoughtful. Otherwise, we might find that we're coming to Him and offering the sacrifice of fools which will do us no good at all. Brethren, prayer is not a toy. We are not chit-chatting with our best friend over coffee. We are coming into the presence of the august and majestic God. And we need to take that very seriously. Because He is in heaven. And we are on earth. 
our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. A lot of things change depending on which word you emphasize. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means separating, sanctifying, setting apart as something that is holy and to be honored and to be revered. If we are praying this prayer, we are pointing out that God's name is the name that is to be honored. God's name is the name to be revered. And of course, we recognize that this is a figure of speech. That it's not just saying that the appellation God, G-O-D, or Jehovah, if you want to use that, is to be honored and revered. But God and everything about Him is to be honored and revered and set apart and sanctified. God is to be glorified. This is not just some trite phrase of praise, brethren. This is a mission statement for every single one of us. John chapter 15 and verse 8. John chapter 15 and verse 8. As Jesus was preparing His disciples, He was leaving. And in John chapter 15 and verse 8, He says, By this, My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will prove to be My disciples. If we want to be disciples of Christ and thereby sons of God, our duty, our responsibility is to bear much fruit that glorifies Him. Hallowed is He. He is the one worthy of glory and honor. And as we go through the remainder of this prayer, we've got to understand that. This prayer is not about glorifying and honoring us. It's about hallowing and glorifying God. Psalm 115 and verse 1. If you've gone through the booklet, you'll remember that one of the pieces of advice that I've given is if you struggle with the way to say some things in prayer, just go ahead and open your Bible and use some of the language there. This one right here is one that I've started using a lot. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us, but to Your name give glory. Who is to be hallowed? Who is to be glorified? Not me, and not you. God is. And the question is then, who do we really want to be glorified? In our prayers, whose glory and honor are we seeking? How many of us really want to pray this prayer? Hallowed be your name. Not mine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe it's regrettable that many of us get snagged on this statement, Your kingdom come. Certainly, brethren, I believe that if what Jesus was teaching was that these disciples ought to pray that the kingdom enter into the world, we can't pray for that anymore because the kingdom has already entered into the world. Colossians chapter 1 
and verse 13. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul said, as he spoke to those Colossian Christians, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Back here when the book of Colossians was written, there were people already delivered into the kingdom. The kingdom was already on the earth. is already there. So I certainly hope you understand that I believe the kingdom was established on the day of Pentecost. And after that, you, you wouldn't pray for the kingdom to get started because it's already done. However, I do not believe when Jesus said, Your kingdom come, He was speaking strictly of the establishment or the start of the kingdom of Christ. I believe that that statement, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a modifier and a descriptor of what He meant by Your kingdom come. The word kingdom there simply means rule reign, king's dominion. He's saying, your dominion, your rule, your reign, your control, come into this earth by your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. While I recognize that the kingdom is here on the earth, who among us would say that it rules the earth as it rules heaven? It doesn't take too much looking to see that it's not ruling the earth as it rules in heaven. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus said, Luke 17, 20 and 21, just going to read the red part, if you've got a red letter edition here. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The territory of God's kingdom is not land, It's not nations. It's the hearts of men. And when we are praying, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, as I believe Jesus meant it here, we are praying that the rule and reign of God permeate throughout the hearts of mankind on this earth as it permeates throughout the hearts of the heavenly hosts. But now the question is, how many of us really want that? How many of us really want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because I want you to think about, if you prayed this prayer, what you would be saying. Where would the answer to this kind of prayer, where should it begin? Look in Matthew 6.33. Same sermon in which Jesus taught this prayer. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, He looked at us as individuals and He told us, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. When we're praying that God's kingdom come and His will is done on earth as it is in heaven, where should that begin? Right here. In my heart. Do I really want God's will to be done in my life as it is in heaven? 
Is that the way I'm living all day long? That God's will is done in my life as it is in heaven? Am I seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness? When I am praying this prayer, I'm not telling God, God, you go do something. I'm telling God, here's what I want to do. I want your kingdom in my heart. Your rule. Your reign. My will doesn't matter anymore. What I want doesn't count for anything anymore. I want to crucify myself with your Son so that it's no longer me living, but it's your Son living through me. The life that I live, Father, I live by faith in Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Do I really want that? Or do I just want to go to church and get to do whatever else I want to do throughout the rest of the week? How many of us really want that? But I want you to notice that this prayer is not just about us as individuals. It's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in my life. Of course, if I'm really going to be praying this, it's going to begin in my life. But I don't want it just in my life. Where am I wanting it done? Throughout the earth. That means I want it in your life as well. And I want it in the lives of those people that aren't here tonight. And I want it in the lives of everybody on the face of the earth. Now, how could I possibly pray this prayer, Your will be done on earth, if I am not willing to get His will spread out to anybody else in the earth? Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. How can I claim that I want God's will done on earth as it is in heaven if I am not willing to follow Jesus' example and get the gospel of that very kingdom out for other people to hear? How many of us really want to pray this prayer. Because, brethren, if we pray this prayer and mean it, we're not talking about something God's going to do. We're talking about something we are committed to do. And let me just tell you, if you're not committed to getting God's will throughout your life and to others, don't pray this prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. What a phenomenal request. Give us this day our daily bread. This sentence does not just tell us that we need to pray for our physical needs. Praying this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is an acknowledgement of God. It says that if I'm going to eat every day, if I'm going to get what I need every day, there's only one place I can get it from. And that's God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting or variation. And so God, please take care of me. Give me this day, give us this day, our 
daily bread. Think about what that's saying. When we're saying that, we are telling God, Lord, give me what you think is enough for me. In fact, this is really an abbreviated form of a prayer that we can find in Proverbs chapter 30. In Proverbs chapter 30, Agur, the son of Jacheh, in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 7 says, Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die, remove falsehood and lies far from me. Halfway through Proverbs 30 and verse 8, he prays, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What a powerful prayer. I'm sure we wouldn't have any problem praying the part of it that said, don't let me be poor. But how many of us, when we prayed that prayer, would be concerned that when we were poor, we might steal and profane the name of God? That's, that's amazing to me. He's not saying, don't let me be poor because, oh, that would be bad, and I wouldn't be able to do this, and I wouldn't be able to do that, and I couldn't have this. He said, God, don't let me be poor because if I'm poor, I'd be tempted to steal, and if I stole, I would profane your name. And remember, what's it all about? It's about hallowing your name. But on the other end of that spectrum, how many of us would be willing to pray the other half of that prayer? Don't give me too much. Because God, I'm afraid if you give me too much, I might get satisfied and distracted by all of these material things and I might forget that you are God and I might turn my back on you. So just give me what you think is enough. Don't, don't make me poor, but don't make me rich. Just give me what you feel is enough for me. How many of us really want to pray that prayer? How many of us would really even have any kind of idea of how much might be too much? We're certain it's more than we've got now, right? 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. How many of us would be content with food and clothing? That means we don't get that nice computer. Truck, car. Could we be content with this? Now, brethren, I'm not saying that's all we're allowed to have. I'm just asking the question. Could we be content? Saying, Father, just give us all you think we need. If He decided that all we needed was just food and clothing. How many of us really want to pray that prayer? But I want you to notice that as we're praying this prayer, it's not just give me this day my daily bread, it's give us this day our daily bread. So when I'm praying, I'm not just praying that I get what God thinks I need, I'm also praying for you as my brethren and praying for God's children that He give us all what we need. I want you to look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2. 
Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Do you see what this prayer means? You know, it's not going to do me any good to pray this prayer for my brethren who are destitute, who are in need. If I'm sitting over with more than my daily allotment, and I'm just hoarding it in my bank account. If God has blessed me with more than the daily allotment, then when I'm praying this prayer, I am saying that I am willing, Father, to be a part of this, the answer to this prayer. And will reach into the stores with which You have blessed me and will help others. Which corresponds in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. This prayer doesn't mean nobody's allowed to be rich because... 1 Timothy chapter chapter 6 and verse 17 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. When God has blessed us with more than our daily allotment, we need to be about the business of helping those others be blessed with their daily allotment. Give us this day our daily bread. The question again is, how many of us really even want to pray this prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. First thing, of course, we recognize this, is if we're going to be able to pray this prayer, we've got to recognize that we are sinners. Now, I know for most of us that's a no-brainer. We probably all recognize that, but I do want to remind you about Luke chapter 18, verse 11, that there might be some who don't recognize that. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Here was a person, a very religious person, who didn't recognize their own sins and could not pray, forgive me my debts. If we're going to be able to pray this prayer, we've got to recognize that we are sinners. But I found it interesting. Why didn't he say, forgive us our sins? Why did he say, forgive us our debts? Because we've got to understand exactly what sin is and what sin does. Sin is not just some mistaken judgment. Sin is not just some character flaw. Sin is not just something we do because we're only human. Sin is something we do that causes us to owe God. We have fallen short of His glory... He has given us all of this and we've wasted it and slapped Him in the face and decided to do something other than He wants us to do. And because of that, we owe Him. And we owe Him a debt that we cannot pay. Because we can't come before Him and say, 
God, just hold on a little bit longer and next week I'll be able to pay a little bit more on this debt and I promise I'll get it paid off in a while. What's this request? Forgive this debt because I can't pay it. One of the things that I think is getting lost in our society regarding forgiveness is the fact that if we are asking for forgiveness, if we are asking for mercy, if we are asking for grace, we are asking for something we do not deserve. And I think that in some cases, perhaps there's been some kind of faulty connection that we've made. God has promised that if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 makes that abundantly clear. Verse 8, he says, if we say that we, this is 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, like that Pharisee, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And because He has promised that if you really do repent and you really do confess, I will wipe it away. I think sometimes we have this idea because we've come to God in prayer, we deserve to be forgiven. It's forgiveness. The only way we would deserve anything is if we could actually, by our own power, pay that debt ourselves. But it's forgiveness. It's mercy. I'm asking for something I do not deserve. And therefore, if God decided to refuse me, I couldn't even get upset about it. Because I don't deserve it. And when He does give it to me, I can't get haughty and arrogant. I am not better than anybody else just because I am forgiven. Just because God has given mercy to me since I went to Him does not make me better than anybody else. I'm just one who's gone and accepted the grace He's offered to everybody. And that's it. It's a debt that we cannot pay. But interestingly, with this prayer, He provides a qualification. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This was so important that when Jesus got done teaching about this prayer, He went back to this point. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14, He said in Matthew 6 and verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In Luke chapter 11, when Jesus taught on prayer and then continued on teaching, in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 6. Verse 37. I got a little confused. Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. He says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. 
Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. If we want to receive mercy, we have to be merciful. This passage does not say that if you put money in the plate, God's going to give you a hundredfold back. I don't care what all the televangelists in the world tell you. But what it does say is that if you want to receive mercy from God, you've got to be merciful to others. If we want forgiveness, we have to forgive. How many of us really want to pray this prayer? God, I have forgiven people the exact same way I want you to forgive me. Please forgive me. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this was the hardest part of this entire passage for me. The word translated temptation here is used in various ways throughout the Scripture, but whichever way you use it, it causes some questions in my mind. Sometimes temptation is used to refer to the idea of of something placed before you to try to make you stumble and make you sin. Sometimes the same word is used to describe the idea of a testing in order to prove and improve your faith. Sometimes it's used to describe just a hardship in life that you're going through. And it says, God, do not lead me into temptation. And no matter which one of those I, I pick, I've got questions about it that I'm not sure I know the answers to. If I'm going to talk about God, don't lead me into temptation, referring to don't lead me to a stumbling block that causes me to sin, I have problems with that kind of idea because I remember in James chapter 1, in James chapter 1, verse about, oh, about verse 14 or 15, James said, Verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And so I said, well, he's, he's already said, he never let, does lead us into those temptations. So I have problems with that interpretation. But if I'm thinking about the idea of a testing to prove my faith, I think about what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than the gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Here's the idea that these kind of tests... Instead of not wanting to be involved in them, these are the kind of things that refine me as a Christian and make me stronger. I'm not sure that I'm going to pray. Don't lead me into that. Well, the idea of just hardships. Don't lead me into the hardships. But then I remember James chapter 1 and verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Same word. On the one hand, I'm supposed to pray that I'll never get there, but if I do have count it all joy, I don't know, brethren. I struggle. And I'm pretty certain that I don't fully grasp everything that is behind this statement in this prayer. However, there are some passages that I found that correspond with this that help me somewhat. For instance, Psalm 119. A similar prayer in Psalm 119. Beginning at about verse 33 is where we're going to begin. Psalm 119 and verse 33. Two passages I just want you to listen to and then let's talk about it for a minute. 
Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now here, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. See, there's a similar. Don't lead me into temptation. Don't incline my heart to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach which I dread for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Look also at Psalm 141. Psalm 141 beginning at verse 3. In Psalm 141, beginning at verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. Lead me not into temptation. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me It shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it, for still my prayers against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave, as when one plows and breaks up the earth. But my eyes are upon you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. What's that? Deliver us from the evil one. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. Now, whether evil one there refers directly to the devil or to any evil minion of his that he might use in this world to get us to fall, it really is immaterial. When you take a look at those psalms and they have a greater context, I think we begin to see what this kind of prayer means. Don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. You read those psalms. Write those down and go back and study those. Because when you look at those, do you realize what those psalms are saying? They're basically saying, God, I know. If you let me try to do this by myself, I am going to fail. I'm not going to make it. I need you to keep me on the right path. Whatever it takes, get the righteous to rebuke me. How many of us would pray that prayer? Show me your word and make me get into it. Whatever it takes, Father. Don't let me fall into temptation and sin, but deliver me from the evil one. Whatever it takes. How many of us are willing to pray that to God? It reminds us of another psalm. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 says that with every sin, with every temptation, God has provided a way of escape, but do we really want to take it? What we learn is the only way we'll take it is if we let God lead our lives. 
Here's the great thing about this prayer. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. says, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Verse 6, 2 Peter 2, verse 6, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who is oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented by his righteous soul from day to day, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He says, the Lord knows how to do this. But I want you to notice who He does it for. He doesn't just do it for anybody who mouths these words. He does it for the godly. For those who are willing to devote themselves to righteousness, who are tormented by sin. Can I put this plug in here? Not those who are entertained by it at the movie house. Tormented by sin. Those are the ones He knows how to deliver. But all too often what we want is to be able to live however we want. Say these words and God says, okay, I'm going to keep you from sinning too badly. How many of us really want to pray this prayer. Because it's not just God do something for me, it's God, here's what I am doing for you. But I can't do it on my own. I need your help. And finally, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Some of you probably have translations that do not include those lines. And there's actually good reason for that. The earliest manuscripts don't include it. When you look over in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus taught the parallel passage about this, He didn't have it there. However, there's no doubt when you take a look at the, the overall tenor in the Scripture about Bible teaching that this statement is valid. And so we're going to talk about it. First Chronicles chapter 29 1 Chronicles chapter 29, about halfway through verse 10. In 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 10, David prayed, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Notice what he says here. For yours is the kingdom. Because everything else in this prayer, he says, I'm praying all these things because of this. Why do I want your name to be hallowed? Why do I want your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why am I coming to you asking for my daily bread, asking for my debts to be forgiven, asking to be led out of temptation and delivered from the evil one? Because I understand that yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And yours is the glory. It doesn't belong to me. It's yours. And therefore, you deserve the glory. And I don't. Therefore, if I'm going to get my daily bread, 
I have to come to you. If I'm going to receive forgiveness, I have to come to you. If I want to overcome the tempter, I have to come to you. How many of us are willing to cast ourselves that completely on God and recognize that without Him we're absolutely nothing and can't do anything? Because His is the kingdom and the glory and the power for ever. Amen. We all want the keys to effective and successful prayer, don't we? Regrettably, when we look for that, too often we look for a formula. And we'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, you've got to start off with a healthy sprinkling of praise. And then add in a good layer of confession. Put in a heaping portion of petition strained of selfishness. And then top it all off with more praise. And say amen. And that will be an effective prayer. Oh, it's so much more than that. Studying this prayer, and all that we've studied throughout this month, and for me, this year, I have learned the answer to how to pray to get whatever you want. Would you like to know what it is? You've got to learn to want what God wants and pray for that. That's what this prayer teaches us. Because when I want what God wants and I want Him to be glorified and I want His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I pray for those things, God will do it. But how many of us really want to pray that prayer? I don't know what you think about all that Jesus said in these few sentences, but it is almost frighteningly intense to me. Let's remember that prayer is a growth process. Perhaps you, like me, are concerned that you really can't pray this prayer just now. Always remember that we need to pray no matter where we are in the growth spectrum. According to Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our weaknesses. However, we must not be complacent. We must grow in prayer, making praying a tool by which we are bent to God's will and not the other way around. Again, I want to thank you for joining us at the Franklin Church of Christ in this study. I invite you to study with us on any number of subjects. If you've been given this lesson on CD by a friend, feel free to get on our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com and download any of the lessons we have available in audio format or download the outlines to print out and study on your own. If you have any questions about prayer, about Jesus, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please contact us by calling 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com.
May God richly bless you, and may you richly bless God.